We are in the middle of a series on what to expect in heaven. Last week was a foundational discussion. That's why I encourage you to get the CD if you want to listen to what we talked about last week. We did a number of things that are pretty important. We first laid the groundwork for what we weren't going to study. Remember, we talked about we're not studying end times and rapture and all that stuff. What we're studying is heaven, a subject that's never talked about in church, and that's why we're tackling it as Exodus as part of our challenge to go deeper than we normally do. We talked about the reasons that we're going to study heaven. We talked about how our view got so skewed about what heaven's like. And if you remember, our theme in that regard was that we've been very influenced in the church by the Christoplatonic view, that idea that everything spiritual is good, everything material is bad. So we ended up with a very skewed doctrine where a lot of us think that when we die, we're just going to be like spirits. And of course, we are actually going to have physical resurrected bodies, okay? We also talked about the commandment that we should set our eyes on things above, meaning we should be seeking heaven and knowing something about it and longing to be in our ultimate home. This is not our home. And finally, we, we really tore apart some common myths about heaven that are not accurate. So we put those myths aside in an effort to get our minds thinking about what heaven really is like, and that's where we're going to start tonight. Now, I'm going to put an asterisk next to tonight because I think it's very important that you understand that some of the things we're talking about tonight involve some healthy Christian speculation that we talked about last week. If you remember, we said that because we are to seek heaven and to imagine it and to dream about it, we are to look a little bit into the future and we may need to use a little bit of speculation. I'm going to try to underline where I think there might be some speculation. So tonight is kind of one of those talks where I feel we really need to pay attention to what's textual, what we can take from the text, and then also be careful when we step one more step outside and say, this may be just totally wrong, but we are intelligent people who can at least start to dream and imagine. And if heaven is beyond our wildest imaginations, well, that's biblical too. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Lord, we usually ask for open minds when we come uh, into the subjects that we study in Exodus. Tonight I asked for just a special elasticity to our minds because we are going to delve into topics that truly uh, go deeper. And in doing so, Lord, I just pray that some of us would come out uh, understanding a little bit more about you and having a little bit more of an awesome understanding of how great you are. Lord, the fact that many of these things are not taught or regularly discussed is going to challenge us tonight, and I pray that we're up to the task. But most importantly, Lord, as your word reveals to us, it's your Holy Spirit that is really guiding and revealing what heaven will be like. So tonight we have clues from the text. Let us have open minds to read those clues. Let us understand what the inferences are that you want us to draw. Keep us from making wrong inferences, Lord. Show us the places where we're just speculating, wishing, or dreaming, and that's okay. But Lord, keep us grounded in the text and keep our minds open so that we might just glimpse an understanding of the great things that lie ahead for us. In your precious name we pray. Amen. We're dealing with what happens in the interim between death and our final destination of heaven. Now, I'm going to define that as the intermediate states, but really... The best way to bring this down is just a simple question. What happens after we die? And I am going to asterisk that and footnote it because I'm not saying what happens after we die in eternity. 
but I'm assuming for the time being that there's a lapse of time between the moment that we die and the moment that we're judged and go into the eternal heaven. You know that we've talked about eternal heaven being here on earth. So tonight I'm going to try to make this case for you. I'm going to first examine what is eternal heaven. Okay, we're going to kind of work backwards. What is eternal heaven? What is eternal hell? Kind of working backwards, how the judgments work a little bit, and then kind of work back to the moment of death and see why do theologians believe that there is something between death and these other events that we describe. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, you guys want to go to the next slide for a second? The first way to look at it is to draw this timeline. It's a simple timeline. I'm going to make it more complicated in a second, but here's as simple as it is so you know what we're talking about. We know there's life and we know that we die. Okay? If you were here during the first discussion about heaven, you know that we're not talking about end times, rapture, millennium. For the moment, all we're doing is we're assuming that sometime before Christ comes back and institutes all of those things, those end time things, that we're going to die. It's an assumption, of course, because we know that at any moment Christ could come back. But for the purpose of studying heaven, we're going to assume that this life ends at that point on the timeline and we're dead. Now, here's the other assumption, that some time passes before the final levels of judgment, okay? And then we're going to move forward. So the question mark on the screen represents where we are tonight, the intermediate states. What happens in between those two markers? If you go to the next slide for a second, this is a more complicated version of the timeline. We're going to work through each of these things tonight. But I want to work backwards again because it might be easier because we have more scriptural text at the latter stages of the timeline. You see that up there on the screen, over to the right-hand side, we have eternal heaven and we have eternal hell. Those are on two different paths, of course, but that's at the end of the timeline. Just before that, you have what's called the judgment of works. And you can see that as we move backwards, there's already a heaven and a hell that's already out there. And that's what we're going to be talking about when we call the intermediate heaven and the intermediate hell. If you move even further back in the timeline, you see where death is. And of course, before that, there's life here on earth. So reading it forward, the inference that theologians derive from the text is that we have life on earth. We die. After death, we're split into one of two camps, if you want to call it you know, heaven and hell, for some period of time until the final judgments come. When all of the nations will be judged at the same time, all of the peoples of the earth will be judged at the same time. And then you're going to the eternal heaven and the eternal hell. Now, that's the sneak peek at the timeline. I'm going to walk through each one of those steps so you see where it comes from scripturally. Keep those concepts in mind. We're working backwards from eternal heaven eternal hell, back to judgment of works, judgment of faith, the intermediate states, and death. So let's look at eternal heaven. What is eternal heaven? This is straight from Revelation, the end of the Revelation, where we have what I like to call the, the clear parts of Revelation, the non-apocalyptic provisions that tell us the following. This is Revelations 21, 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's where the end heaven is going to be, on earth. And you know that in the, in the next few weeks, we're going to be describing what life on new earth will be like. Okay, the eternal heaven. But if you read this passage in context, you realize that it's not happened yet. This heaven that's going to happen is going to be a new earth, a new creation. It hasn't happened yet. So that's why when we drew that timeline, we have to put it out somewhere at the edge of the timeline. All right. And we know that we're anticipating this. It's coming. So that's marker number one, that some point in the future, God will be pleased to dwell with man here on earth. And that is our ultimate home. Let's go to the next slide. There is going to be an eternal hell as well. This is Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's point number two on our timeline. All right. Again, a future event. All indications appear that this has not yet happened because we know it says here that all the dead, great and small, will be standing in front of them and we're not there yet. So we know that's a future event. So in our timeline, we know that at some point, There will be the ultimate destination of heaven. There will be the ultimate destination of hell that are eternal. You can see what I've underlined here, that even death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Last week we had an interesting discussion about Hades. Remember that? We were talking about what does it actually mean? Is it synonymous with hell? Is it different than hell? Is it the Greek kind of concept of the land of the dead? And in this context... After you guys challenged me on this point, the research seems to indicate that it is, in this context, similar to the concept of that intermediate hell we're going to be talking about. What it's basically saying is all the places of evil that have come before are going to be thrown into that lake of fire. That's why it's also called the second death. So, we understand the points of the timeline. Any questions so far? This is the mind-bending night, remember? So you guys are free to ask questions anytime. This is the stuff that you never hear anywhere else. Questions so far? Okay, go to the next slide. Let's look at where we are in the timeline. So we know, filling in the blanks so far, life ends in death. At some point, we just read about the judgment, and it's going to result in our eternal home being heaven, or our eternal home being hell, heaven being on the recreated or renewed earth. All right, let's talk about the judgments. Go to the next slide, Sarah. I'm going to throw out two judgments. There's a judgment of faith and there's a judgment of works. Believers are going to be subject to both, as are unbelievers. There's an idea, and I want to bring it up, that believers will never be subject 
to a judgment of works. And tonight, we're free to debate it. And that's one of the reasons I bring it up, because it's one of the things that's challenging me in my thinking. But believers and unbelievers, I believe, will be subject to both judgments of faith and works. Let me walk through them, and then we can talk about them if you have some questions about the topic, okay? What is the judgment of faith? This goes back to the verse in Revelation that we were just reading. The judgment of faith is sometimes referred to as the white throne judgment, the great throne judgment. This is the point where you are judged based on does your name fall into the book of life or does it not? Anyone know what the book of life represents? Salvation in Jesus Christ. The book of life, if your name is written in the book of life, it represents that you are someone who believes that the blood of Christ covers you and your name is found in the book of life. So you can see it says here, reading them from that same verse, you know, another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The presumption being, of course, the opposite. If your name is found in the book of life, then you don't suffer that fate. So the first test, the first judgment is really one of, are you a believer or not? Are you going to heaven or not? The alternative is the lake of fire. Go to the next slide if you could, Sarah. This is how it breaks down. The judgment of faith means that believers will pass the judgment of faith because our belief in Jesus is enough. All right? This is very important that we not confuse works and salvation. This is strictly the judgment of faith. You believe in Jesus Christ. You find him as your Lord and Savior. You confess his name, repent, things we've talked about in our earlier talk about elementary doctrines of Christianity, then you have what it takes to pass the judgment of faith. By inference, and of course, by direct quote from the text, those who do not believe in Christ will not pass the judgment of faith. They will be judged according to their works. What is the penalty for being judged according to your works? What, what's, what, what would we refer to? Like Romans 3.23? like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you want to forego your defense based on judgment of faith by believing in Jesus, you're allowed to make your own defense. If you want to, you'll be judged on your works, right? What's the standard? Right, the standard would be perfection. So if you think you're perfect and you want to go through the judgment of faith, <laughs> I guess that would be kind of ironic, based on your works, you're allowed to, but if you have one sin, you would fail. Kind of like going to the DMV, right? Same thing when you take the written test, one, one thing wrong and you fail. You can see again the citation from Revelation, the dead were judged according to what they had done. So that's the first level. That's what's going to separate people from heaven and hell. Notice an interesting thing about these books. The books contain your works. The book of life contains only your name. And that shows you how salvation is by grace alone in Christianity. If your name is found in there, it doesn't matter what you've done. Your name being in the book of life is sufficient for you to get into heaven. But if your name is not in there, now we have to go on to your works. So hear me on this. It's very important for those people who are very strong in their belief that grace and grace alone, which has been the hallmark of the whole Reformation and the whole Protestant movement, Grace and grace alone is going to be the thing that gets you into heaven. I'm not saying, I'm not contradicting that one iota. The book of life is saying that. If your name is found in there, that's all you need. Let's go to the next slide. This is the judgment of works. 
Those who do not believe in Christ will be judged according to their works. We just saw that. So for unbelievers, the judgment of faith leads them right to the judgment of works automatically. You're not, your name is not found in the book of life. You're under the judgment of works right away. You're out of there because you're going to fail. We know that. It's guaranteed. It's scriptural. As surely as our promise is to have salvation, the man who stands before God without Christ's blood is guaranteed to fail the judgment of works. But what about believers? And the question is, will believers also face a judgment of works? I believe the answer is yes. And here's the scripture that I'm going to cite from. If you go to the next slide, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. If you have it, it'd be good for you to actually look at it in your Bible because this is one of those passages that I will tell you. I read a number of times in the past and I never really quite understood what it was saying. And maybe because I was reading it outside the context of judgment in the end time or in heaven. I was reading it more in one of Paul's letters talking about how we look at, you know, how we look at ourselves or how we're to behave or how we're to carry ourselves as Christians. And I never really understood that maybe what he was talking about was something about the judgments. So I'm going to present this text tonight to you. Feel free to push back. I will tell you that a number of the authorities that I looked up also cite the same text as the basis for Christians undergoing a judgment of works. So Christians have passed the judgment of faith. They're on their way to heaven, but they will still face the judgment of works. Here's what it says. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which has been built upon it, remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. Take a look at the types of materials that are illustrated in this passage. Gold, silver, and precious stones. You also have wood, hay, and straw. It's almost like you can divide them into two groups. One that's going to easily burn if you put the fire to it, and one that's going to probably survive the fire. You might be able to melt it down, but it's still going to pretty much be what it was before. The other ones will just burn up and disappear. What this passage says to us is that our works, like the foundations we build upon, are going to be tested in the judgment of works. Now, the concept of the judgment of works ties directly into what we're going to talk about in about two minutes, which is rewards in heaven. Also a topic of great mystery and controversy. But for the moment, I want you to get this out of this passage. At the judgment of works, what we're there to find out is, will we receive a reward in heaven? Nothing more. We've already passed the judgment of faith, the one that tells us that we are going to heaven. The judgment of works is not, I repeat, is not going to disqualify us from going to heaven. Look at the underlying portion because Paul makes it very clear. He himself shall be saved regardless of the outcome of the testing of what's going on here. The man will still be saved, but what he brings with him may not survive the fire. 
So what happens at the judgment of works is basically God is going to test us and the intentions of our hearts when we did those things that we said we did for him. If you take this passage down to its absolute layman's terms, this is what Paul is saying. At the end of your life, you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You as a Christian are on your way to heaven, but now there's just one last thing. Christ is going to ask you to give account for your life, for the things that you did, because now he's going to reward you for what you have done in your life. But he wants to make sure that those things that you did, you did out of motivation for the kingdom and not out of motivation for yourself. The things that you did out of motivation for yourself are going to be like the wood, the hay, and the straw. They're going to burn. And you could tell it, some will burn faster than others. I mean, it's kind of interesting that he lists three different elements that burn, but wood burns much slower than straw. But it's going to burn. Then you have like gold, silver, and precious stones, which represents the kind of deed that we've done here on earth that survives the fire and makes it with us. Those are the things we will be rewarded for. Remember, Jesus told us there were things that we should be doing. The same way when they asked him, Lord, when did we ever see you in jail or ill or naked or hungry? And he said, remember, whenever you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. Yes, your salvation is assured. Yes, your eternal destination in heaven is assured. But your rewards are going to be dependent on this judgment of works. So for the believer, the judgment of works is really all about what kind of reward or lack of reward we're going to have in heaven. For the unbeliever, the judgment of works is all they have left because they don't have enough faith to make it past it. And for them, it's going to be disastrous because their works will condemn them. I believe that even Jonathan Edwards used to have in one of his famous sermons, you know, the idea that, and the Puritans were very big into this, that you should be tested all the time to find out if what you're doing on this earth will survive ultimately. You know, and they use the imagery of gold, silver, fire, you know, and there's actually songs written about, you know, like, test me and see. Okay, so this concept has been around for a long time, but I think that's the illustration, okay, is that's what the fire represents. We believe that a lot of the stuff that we do are good deeds that are going to be rewarded in heaven. And I think the passage talking about suffer loss is talking directly about the people who think that they've done good works, that when they're actually tested, we'll find out they did them for selfish reasons or for their own motivations and not for kingdom motivations. And they will, I mean, when I hear the word suffer loss, I think exactly about the guy who says, but Lord, didn't I, and you fill in the blanks, and, and Jesus says what? Depart from me, I never knew you. So, I mean, think of a, I don't think there's anything you could suffer more loss than standing at that moment thinking like, okay, now I have to be careful because that passage that I just cited, even though it has the emotion of suffer loss, may not be a post-judgment of faith verse. That may be somebody who's on the other path who thinks they had faith or is being judged on their works and is actually being sent to eternal damnation that is crying out, but Lord, I'm not going to represent to you where that one falls, but think of that kind of emotion. And, and if you give me a second, you're going to see that we do think that treasures will be subject to loss. One of the uh, resources that I brought tonight walks through this in a lot of detail about what our treasures are going to be in heaven how can you get them? Can you lose them? 
and there's and just cite scripture after scripture of what Jesus' own words were about treasure in heaven. You see, if I could frame it this way, we spend so much time talking about salvation through grace alone, and that is very important because that is absolutely true. But you almost have to then set that aside for a minute and tackle all of the verses and teachings that Jesus said about treasure and about reward, and you think, well, what could that mean? I mean, if salvation is by grace alone, then why is he spending so much time talking about store your treasures of heaven or you will be rewarded or what is he talking about? And it's almost like you have to almost stop one sentence and say salvation by grace alone, period. Now then, we have assured salvation that doesn't mean that we're all going to walk into the kingdom of heaven completely equal. And some of us are going to think that we have built up rewards based on things that we've done in our lives, that when they get tested by Christ himself and he peers directly into our hearts, they're just going to wither away because he's going to see the true motivation was never the kingdom. It was our own glory. It was whatever it was, selfish gain, and that kind of withers away. But some of them will remain, and those are the ones that are worthy of reward. An unpopular discussion in the church, by the way, because you're spending so much time trying new believers that it's by faith alone. Now I'm assuming that I'm talking to mature believers who are way beyond salvation and are now grappling with what am I going to do when I'm in heaven? Let's look at treasures in heaven. I mean, it's a great place to do it. Here are just some verses. I mean, let me just let, let, the, let the words speak to you because they spoke to me. This is Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. What does that mean? I mean, when I first read that verse, I didn't like it. I rejected the doctrine of rewards. I wanted heaven to be very communist. I wanted everyone to be equal. I didn't like the idea of somebody receiving rewards. I still can't fathom that, how you are going to have that and not have envy, <laughs> jealousy in heaven. But that's because I'm under the curse of sin and I can't imagine it but I know that someday it will make perfect sense to me. Matthew 19, 21, B. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. What is he talking about? I mean, it's not salvation. He's talking about you will have treasure in heaven. Here's Luke 14, 12 through 14. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. In other words, you've got your repayment. Somebody invited you, you know, you invite them, you invite a rich person, they'll invite you back. That's your payment. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Again, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Is Jesus just writing checks he can't cash? What's he talking about? Is he writing just like blank checks for the heck of it? Is he, is he trying to fool us into taking care of the blind and the lame while he's gone? No, he's telling us you will be repaid. Every word of Christ is true. You've got to take that true and literal. It doesn't sound like there's anything figurative about this. You're going to be repaid for this. I wish in my theology, I wish salvation was enough payment because then I wouldn't have to worry about what I did the rest of my life. You know what I mean? I'd have salvation would be good. And then I would just know that when I got there, it was going to be so beyond and I do believe that heaven is still going to be so amazing, even if you walked in with zero rewards. But for some reason, Christ wants us to know that there are rewards. And by the way, I don't think this is because he's trying to get us to 
buy more tickets at the fair and try to see how many tickets we can, you know, like, you know, and then go get the biggest prize possible. You have to remember that part of his sense of justice has to be people who have done what I've commanded should receive some sort of reward. You know what? I'm glad it bothers you because it bothered me for a long time. And the, I got to say that it almost still bothers me. But now you guys are picking up on some of the reasons it's not talked about in church. Because you could imagine the buzz is going to send through the congregation, especially if you're mixed between like new Christians and non-believers and old Christians and, and, and people who are coming from all different sides. These are not easy doctrines. I, I think part of the fear is that it might be a works righteousness type thing or you, be, you, you start to get on the treadmill of Christianity to earn rewards in heaven. Part of it, I think, is just my fear, at least, is that I'm going to be jealous of people who have more than I do in heaven. But if you guys want to just take a quick little footnote for a second, when we talk about the eternal heaven, you're going to see that it goes much deeper than treasures in heaven. You're going to start to see what Christ said when he says, you will rule with me and that society will have hierarchy in heaven and there will be people who rule over you and you will rule over people. And that for those who are tweaked by treasures, you're going to get even more tweaked as we go down the line. And the only thing I could say to you is maybe it is incomprehensible to us because we live in a sinful world where we can't imagine total bliss, total happiness, no envy, no jealousy, and yet having people have different amounts of stuff around us or different amounts of blessings or different amounts of rewards, whatever it is. Angela, you're dealing with it from underneath what I call the curse. Right now, we can't imagine a life that doesn't have sin. Right. So it's hard for us to imagine giving in. But yes, I'll be your daddy in the next life. You know what? Actually, just for having said that, I'm sure you will lord over me in the next life. Because it says the meek shall inherit the earth. And a lot of theologians believe that that does not mean just in this life. It literally means it in the next life. And one of the most humbling statements I read by Randy Alcorn in writing his book on heaven was he talked about a bellman at one of the hotels where they had a convention. And every day the bellman would open the door for him and, and say, you guys are Christians and I'm praying for you every day at your convention, you know. And Randy writes in his book that he goes, that is the man who is going to, today he opens the door for me and he prays for me while I'm at the convention, while I'm giving big speeches. But that is going to be the guy that I serve under in heaven. He will be my master in heaven. He will be the person who rules over me because that is the meek that will inherit the earth, you know. That verse has been interpreted to mean not only this earth, but the, the, the new earth. That that promise of Jesus is not temporal in time. That it means the meek, well, well what earth will they inherit? This one's going to burn. <laughs> There's no other earth left. This one's going to, or be recreated. So they're going to inherit the earth. But meaning maybe the ultimate new earth. So you guys got to get meeker. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I love the line from Delirious where he goes, I want to be meeker, but have you seen this whole world? <laughs> you know, and I mean, it's just like one of those things where, you know, like it's just hard to be meek in a world like this. All right, let's, let's drill in a few verses. Open your minds to the Spirit. Here's what it's saying to you. Here's Revelation 2.23. I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This isn't a God who's just meeting out vengeance. He's giving out rewards. Now, of course, if you don't have the saving blood of Jesus, you're, you're, you, what, you, what he will give you is not going to be something you want. But if you're in heaven, he will repay you, all of you, according to your deeds. Romans 14, 10 to 12. By the way, I just want you to notice I've only cited one thing so far from Revelation. You know, the rest of these teachings are straight, clear, you know, texts. We're not even dealing with, with creatures here. So you, there's no interpretation. Romans 14, 10 to 12, straight out of the word. 
We all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God, so then each of us will be given an account, will give an account of himself to God. So that's that judgment where we're standing in front of the seat of Christ saying, here's an account for my life. You guys remember the parable of the talents where they had to give an account to the master when he came back. What did you do with the money I gave you? Okay, now that parable does speak about our life on earth. But truth is eternal. Jesus' truth doesn't, isn't limited to our life on earth. That parable is equally applicable to when we give account to the master. Remember when he says the parable, he's saying, for the kingdom of God is like this. All right, So he's talking about the whole kingdom. It's like the guy who goes away and he gives away the talents. And then when he comes back, sounding a lot like judgment time or end times, when he comes back, he asks each of his servants to give an account for what they had done with the money. And the one who had invested it and gotten the most out of it gets all of it. And the other one gets thrown out. So everybody, including believers, will have to give an account to Jesus for what they've done with their lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. It couldn't be any clearer than that verse. It's saying it straight out. Now, I told you when we began this series on heaven that there are going to be verses we read in the Bible that we've just skimmed over for some reason and never quite understood what they meant. This is one of those verses. I don't know what Paul was talking about every other time I read it, but when I read it in the context of judgment, it's like, man, could it be any clearer? And that's what I think the Spirit opens our eyes to see. If we're looking at the text in the right context, it's saying to us straightly, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive whatever is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So definitely there is the concept that at some point after where salvation is already assured, we need to appear before Christ and give account for our life and he will reward us. Going back to what Casey was having a little bit of a struggle with a second ago about the fire and that one verse we were talking about, you can see that what he's going to do is he's going to look at the things in our life and see do they really stand or not. The fire represents the judgment, and it will test our works that we've done for Christ. Some of them we've done out of selfish motivation and they'll burn. They won't be counted for reward. Some of them are solid. We really did do them for Christ. And they will withstand the fire and Jesus will reward us for those. Here are some things that you might hear at the judgment of the believers. Some will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. That would be a good thing. Matthew 25, 21. Some might hear this. They might be ashamed. 1 John 2.28 tells us, Dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. And finally, like the types of things that we don't get rewards for, we all know this statement from Jesus, Matthew 6, 5 and 6, when he says, Do not be like the hypocrites. Read it in context now of the judgments. Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Do you see? He's not just saying don't be a hypocrite. He's saying if you're a hypocrite and you stand in front of men and you pray out loud, you've already received your rewards. People think you're holy. That's the end of your reward. That's it. No reward for you in heaven. Why? Because you took it on earth. You cashed out early. 
This is not a commandment not to pray out loud. Let's be, let's be truthful. This is a commandment that if you're praying like a hypocrite for the wrong reason, well, guess what? You already got your reward. And then Jesus throws in this word, but, which is always the important part of every verse, after the word but, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, yes, you could read that and say he'll reward you in this life and answer your prayer, but it also means basically with all these other verses we looked at, he's going to reward you in heaven. And if you're not doing that, if you're doing it the way the hypocrites do it, then your reward has already been paid to you on earth. You cashed out early, no reward for you in heaven. If you look at it, there's no reason that Christ's words about hypocrites applies to just non-believers. You know, let me say this. First of all, I'm happy that you guys are able to try to contextualize every verse we're looking at. That actually pleases me because I think you guys, your minds are struggling saying, hey, don't take that out of context, you know? And that's good because a lot of people, in fact, a lot of cults has sprung off from the church because they were able to take a verse out of context and twist it the way they want. But I also don't want you to go the other way, which is just because a statement was made in one context, if it contains an eternal truth that doesn't confine it to that one context. The example we could use is the meek shall inherit the earth. Okay, they might inherit this earth, they might inherit the next earth. But I think if you ask Jesus and you put him on the stand and said, Jesus, do the meek inherit just this earth or the next earth? Or is it just your universal truth that the meek will always inherit whatever's available? You know, I may be wrong, but I think Jesus is going to say the principle is that the meek will always inherit whatever there is, whether it's old earth, new earth, whatever it is, because I'm trying to emphasize meekness, not inheritance. So in a context, even in these verses where you're saying hypocrites being unbelievers and other people who are pious, all right, praying in secret, the doctrine is not about are you doing it correctly under the Jewish law or in secret, the doctrine is hypocrites get no reward. And that eternal truth you can carry to any level. Hypocrites will not get any reward in heaven because when they're tested, they're going to burn like straw. They're building on a foundation that's not strong. So back to our timeline. We've identified where the eternal heaven is. We have identified where the eternal hell is. We've seen that there is a judgment of works and a judgment of faith working backwards. You can see that in the timeline. And you can see that we're back to the issue of death. But what the question that we're ultimately trying to answer is, what happens after death? And if we've made the case that eternal heaven and eternal hell are at a distant point on the timeline, we've made the case that there are these judgments that must occur the question is, do we immediately go to the judgments? Do we just hang out after we die? Are we ghosts on earth? You know, what are we doing during that time period between death and the eternal heaven and the eternal hell? And what we're going to be studying next week is the fairly universal belief among most Christians even though it's not taught, but most theologians will agree that immediately after death, God, knowing how the judgment of faith is going to come out for us, sends us immediately to intermediate heaven, 
or immediately to intermediate hell until the final judgments occur. Everything we've talked about tonight is very scripturally based. What we're going to talk about next week in terms of what happens the moment we die and how we get to intermediate heaven and intermediate hell, it's not that there's no scriptural basis, it's just that it's much less scripture talks about that because it seems like there's just the assumption that we're going to be somewhere. But because it's not our eternal home, there's not a lot of description about it. For example, next week we're going to cover how fast do we get there, what is it like to be there, what are we going to do while we're there. And while those things are important, they're not given so much, I believe, coverage in the Bible because what does it really matter in the end, no matter how long it is, that's not ultimately our home. That's just an intermediate state. One of the biggest lies that Satan has is to blaspheme God's home and to tell us that it's not what we think it is, it's not what we guys want, you don't want to be there, you know, it's not going to be fun or just the very thought of it makes you not want to go. That's a great way. But remember, Satan knows exactly what it's like. He was there. And he is now trying to keep as many people out of there. What better way than to tell people, like, you don't want to go to this place. It's going to be a crazy place with people getting rewards and you're going to be last in line. You're getting nothing. Everybody else will be opening up their Christmas toys and you'll be like, zero. You're the kid that got the underwear for Christmas, you know? You know, and everybody else is playing with their toys, you know, and, and you're like, but that doesn't sound like a place I want to go. It doesn't sound like I want to be in heaven. Those are the lies that are the most devastating to us seeking eternity. They're like the lie that I talked about last week where the girl said, I know there can't be Jesus and I know that he can't be the right way because my daddy's in heaven and he wasn't a Christian. It's like, how, do you, how do you deal with somebody who's in that state? I mean, this girl is convinced her dad is in heaven and you ask her, like, how do you know your dad's in heaven? Because he talked to me. He told me. I know he's there. And this was daddy's little girl who now at the age of 25 will never believe in Jesus because she thinks her daddy's in heaven and he wasn't a Christian. So there's no way what I'm telling her about Jesus being the only way could ever be true because daddy's in heaven and he told her he was there. If you're Satan, what better lie than that to concoct, you know? That girl is, well, I don't want to say never, but you've just crippled that person's chances of finding the gateway to heaven, you know, by playing with her mind that way. I think the way that we're wired, you'll see when we start talking about the things that we yearn for, there's some things that are just natural for man to yearn for. They're part of who we are. When we talked about like man doesn't want to sing forever, it's because as human beings, we have desire for other things. Like, for example, I believe that maybe like reading a book is enjoyable for some people. You know, that may be something that somebody would look at as material, but like God may be no problem with you enjoying reading a book or going fishing or rowing a boat or, you know, it doesn't have to be outdoorsy, by the way. It could be like, maybe you love playing video games. That's great with me. That's great. Have fun. You know, like, like, I, I, I love the fact that you're out there, like, you know, enjoying yourself, you know, like maybe your thing is songwriting. Maybe it's like writing poems. Maybe it's painting. You know, I think God just is going to be like, hey, I'm so glad that you're doing whatever it is you like to do, you know, but eventually some of those things could be material. You know, some people say, like, I've just always, my big dream was to have this, like, big house. And maybe in heaven you get it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it's beauty. Maybe just the beauty of architecture, for example. Like, oh, my God, I would just love to live in a home that, like, has these features and stuff. You know what I mean? Or I would love, this would be, like, like, like what would define heaven for you? Like, me? It would be, like, living in the Louvre in Paris, okay? Like, just having the whole thing. You know, to just walk around. And, and it's not because I want people to go, look at my house. It's because I love architecture so much. And maybe God knows that. Maybe, maybe in heaven, he's like, 
here it is. This is what you've always wanted. Here it is. Have it. It's yours. I mean, I'm one of the few people that goes to that museum and could care less what's hanging on the walls. All I want to see is just like, what would it be like to be one of those kings who lived in this palace and knew that when you came home, this was your house? And maybe God knows that, all right? Let's do a little bit of worship, maybe, and, and, and close off tonight.